Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan. And with me, as always, in Fuoka, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we both love to geek out over fermentation. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? Christopher, I'm well. Uh, getting over a little bit of a summer cold, which was not fun, but hopefully my voice isn't too different from usual. You know, I thought after our last episode on silly liquor laws, jumping back into another politically charged topic uh, with this episode, but then I thought better of it. This is, after all, the Japan Distilled podcast, not the Politics of Booze podcast. <laughs> I think those topics do matter as we navigate the distribution, sale, and consumption of these drinks, but really shouldn't take up too much time or energy. So rather than go in that direction, we're getting more foundational. This episode should pair up really nicely with our Koji episode, which was number 38, and also our Distillation Cuts episode number 32. This season, we had talked about diving in a little bit deeper on production methods and that sort of thing. And that's really uh, what what we're focusing on with these types of episodes. Yeah. And today, of course, we're talking about yeast. And yeast is foundational. And hopefully what you'll take away from this episode is that without yeast, we don't have anything, really. It's so important not only to beverage alcohol production, but it's just important to science, honestly. Yeast is, has been the magic behind fermentation for forever and ever and ever. And I, I hope that everybody out there understands that yeast's main uh, function, as far as we're concerned, is to convert sugar into ethanol or alcohol that we can drink. And let's be honest here. I mean, I don't think anybody would be drinking beer or wine or shochu or anything else if it didn't have alcohol in it. And that's probably overly obvious. But then at the same time, it's like, wow, this is a trillion dollar industry, multi-trillion dollar in industry that's based on something that is a byproduct of yeast. So just a little bit more about yeast. I mean, basically, there are historians that believe that modern civilization is partly due to yeast. We were, you know, various communities of hunter-gatherers who figured out how to cultivate grains and berries and then figured out how to specifically select types of yeast to make alcohol. They didn't realize they were doing that with yeast, though, because people didn't even know what yeast was until about 160 years ago, which is ridiculous. But it really is partly responsible, at least in the eyes of many historians, for the establishment of civilization. And well, let's, let's talk about science for a second. Louis Pasteur in the 1860s gets credit for actually identifying yeast as the catalyst for alcohol production. Before and after that, there were multiple very brainy and very well-respected people who thought that alcohol was just a spontaneous reaction of some other chemical catalyst. It's hilarious. The first food purity law ever Right. Many people know about the Reinheitsgebot in uh, people say it's from Germany. It's not. It was from Bavaria. History is complicated, right? Sure, sure. And uh, that food purity law stated that beer could only be made with malted barley, water, hops. That was it. They didn't even mention yeast because they didn't know what it was. That was back in 1516. We didn't know until the 1860s when we had better microscope technology what these eukaryotic cells were doing. Like I said, they're responsible for everything. Louis Pasteur, his work with beer and wine stuck fermentations, figuring out what was going wrong, that eventually led to the establishment of biochemistry, which allowed us to study human afflictions like anthrax and cholera. And that led to research that gave us vaccinations. And it's just such a central part of everything that makes life possible and more enjoyable yeast, man. Everyone bowed down to the yeast. And obviously, as you mentioned, it's, it's, uh, it's central to, to civilization. I mean, really, 
it created, I guess, opportunities for communities to both make alcohol, obviously, but also another primary use of yeast is is making bread. Oh, absolutely. And bread is a way where you can basically preserve grains and turn it into a food. It's much more easy to digest uh, for humans. It's actually the same yeast. The organism that is used to make alcohol is the exact same organism that's used to make bread, which is a little bit wild, right? That the same organism can do both. Gotcha. So, so therefore I can get a buzz eating bread? <laughs> yeah, it's funny you should ask. Actually, in, in 1926, there was a report from the Canadian Medical Association journal that found residual alcohol was present in samples of bread from both commercial bakeries and also from housewives' kitchens. Let me quote from that article because I think it's hilarious. The alcohol content in this prosaic food varied from 0.04% to 1.9%, the latter well above the one half of 1% limit set by the well-known prohibition statute. And that, of course, is referring to the American prohibition period. This is 1926, uh, which we touched on at the top of the last episode. So it comes back again that there was actually <laughs> residual alcohol in bread uh -huh. that exceeded the limits for, for prohibition alcohol content in drinks. So Wow, they were really allowing that, that fermentation to roll for quite a while, I guess. Um, that brings to mind uh, Carmen McRae legendary jazz singer, right? She once said something along the lines of blues is to jazz what yeast is to bread. Without it, it's flat. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems oddly apt here. If you let that fermentation go for a while and some of these, these dry fermentations, like making a lot of food products, mm -hmm. you can start to get a little bit of ethanol production towards the end. So you have to stop it before it get, goes too far. That's right. And if you think about when you're baking bread, you know, the dough rises, right? And that's actually the function of the yeast. The yeast is, is the leavening agent, basically what, what's making the bread grow. And that's through its, its digestion process. Now, usually I've talked about yeast as being overly simplistically as an anaerobic organism. In a liquid fermentation, that's primarily what it's doing. But, uh, and what I mean by an anaerobic organism is one that does not like to be exposed to oxygen or does not need oxygen. However, that's a vast oversimplification. Yeast, despite being a single-celled organism, actually has two respiratory pathways, one for an oxygen-rich environment and one for an oxygen-poor environment. In an oxygen-rich environment, the yeast will favor its aerobic respiration, which allows it to convert sugars and oxygen into carbon dioxide and water. And so that's what's happening primarily in a bread fermentation. So the carbon dioxide is what's making the bread rise, right? The gas that's being released. However, when it's an oxygen-poor environment, uh, the yeast will convert the sugars into carbon dioxide and alcohol. And contrary to what most people have been taught, even in an oxygen-rich environment, yeast cells will actually use both respiratory pathways simultaneously to create carbon dioxide, water, and alcohol. And it's actually considered a potentially a defense mechanism to protect its food source. Other organisms that might want access to those sugars are more likely to be intolerant to alcohol, but yeast uh, can survive in an alcoholic environment. That and another thing that's nice about yeast is that while they're consuming various types of sugar, whether it's glucose, fructose, um, maltose, in the case of beer especially, they are very adept at highly acidic or low pH environments, which a lot of other bacteria are not. But I say other bacteria, yeast is not a bacteria, it's a type of fungus. But uh, the bacteria competing for the sweet things in that mash will sizzle in many cases when they, if they drop in there and they try to take a seat at the buffet. It's really, really wild. They are, they are such a simple single-celled organism that they're, and they're quite fragile, honestly, but they're also pretty hardy in that they multiply like rabbits <laughs> and they just, they know what they want. What they want is sugar and they don't seem to care that what we're after is alcohol. Um, so, but they've trained us really well. That's right. We give them more and more sugar and then they just spit out this byproduct 
two byproducts. I guess they belch carbon dioxide and they, whatever, number one, number two, whatever you want to call it, the alcohol comes out another end. And, and, and we collect that and we're happy. And then we, we give them a new sugar rich environment to swim in. You know, it's just, it's a pretty nice symbiotic relationship, scratching each other's backs. Sure. But it is interesting how they do, they do have to protect themselves. They do have to, they have found their niche. I mean, it's really kind of like, you know, a squid releasing ink to escape predators or like how those stink bugs make the air really (laughs) unpalatable for everything around it. I guess this is maybe why there's some residual alcohol in, in the breads that you were talking about and why most alcohol fermentations are, are wet or sometimes they're referred to as submerged fermentations mm-hmm. and where we need to deprive the yeast of oxygen in order to maximize alcohol yield from the available sugars and then also to sometimes force the yeast into a less happy place, which causes them to excrete all sorts of esters and other organic compounds that we might be looking for in our drinks. It slows down the fermentation, of course, but it can add to a lot of extra botanical notes. Sure. And in terms of the the anaerobic nature of yeast, from my days in brewing, we used to basically calculate it as yeast pitched into the wort after about 30 minutes in suspension, they were going to have basically sucked all the oxygen out of the wort. Hmm. So a certain amount of aeration was necessary. They're just, they're really amazing little creatures that uh, give us exactly what we're after. (laughs) Sure. It is important to maybe explain that yeast will only multiply in an aerobic uh, environment when there's oxygen available. They tend to focus on eating, but they're not really reproducing in an anaerobic environment. That's actually one of the reasons that we aerate fermentations, right? We talk about how it agitates the yeast, but it also gives them a chance to breathe, gives them a chance to, to multiply again, right? So you're not, you don't have tired yeast trying to eat all of the sugars. You're actually letting them uh, reproduce, create new yeasts and continue the process. So you can run a longer fermentation. I think that's especially important in some of these Japanese fermentations that go, you know, two weeks or longer. Now, you said almost all fermentations are either wet or submerged fermentations, but there are dry fermentations for alcohol, as I understand it. But I I don't have any experience with that. I know you've been to a Chinese baijiu distillery. How do those work? Those are dry fermentations, right? Is there any water added at all or what's the process? Even when it's explained to you, it's a little difficult to get your head around it. I'll do my best to explain it. And it's also something that at least in English, when searching on the web, it's hard to find video of this really showing the whole process. So yeah, dry fermentations are what are known, what we also call solid state fermentations, especially in the literature. Um, solid state fermentations are very common in, in agriculture, you know, food products. We're talking um, kimchi and, and tempeh, which many people will be familiar with where fermentation takes place, but also, you know, chocolate and coffee, the beans are fermented. So there's, there's just fermentation all over the place. Um, sometimes it's solid, solid state. Sometimes it's, it's submerged. Um, but for baijo, and when you pronounce that word, I know it's spelled usually B-A-I-J-I-U. Mm-hmm. The J-I-U part, which means alcohol, mm. just think of it as, as a guy's name, Joe, right? Just like you're saying goodbye to Joe. Bye, Joe. All right. And you're <laughs> All right. Bye, pretty Joe. much there. Got it. Right? <laughs> and uh, Bai Joe is famous, uh, generally speaking, for having a solid state fermentation. And what that means is that the fermentation takes place without any real water activity. Water activity implies submersion. It, it implies water that's moving and that is encompassing everything in, in the mash. So the mash is suspended essentially in liquid. But with Baijo, what they do is they use chu, right? Chu is spelled Q-U. It's pronounced C-H-E-W, I guess is is a close way to say it. Chu is going to have a lot of connections to what we understand about koji, but there's two main types of chu, big chu and small chu. Big chu is these bricks that are made usually out of sorghum and or some other type of grain probably 90% of baijo is made with sorghum or a sorghum mixed with something else. Mm. That is pulverized and 
water is added to it. It's made into a paste. They're fashioned into bricks. They're left out in the sun or in a controlled environment for weeks. And during that time, the bricks collect bacteria. They collect, of course, yeast from the air floating in the wind. They collect koji or other types of, of fungi. And these things grow into these bricks. Now, when it's time to ferment, so this is the pre-fermentation stage. It's something similar to maybe koji inoculation on rice or on barley. We can sort of think of it in that way. Also, sorry, a small chew is usually made with rice and they're made into much smaller balls. They don't take quite as long to um, be inoculated by the various microorganisms that you need in order to start the fermentation. When you're ready to ferment, you pulverize the big chew or the small chew, you turn it into a powder, and then you take your steamed grains, usually sorghum. So these are steamed. So they do have moisture. Right, right, right. Um, for whatever their moisture point is, I'm not sure exactly what it is for different types of sorghum. It's probably somewhere around 40 to 50% uh, if we're just going by the standards of other grains. And then you mix in this powder with the grains, and that's basically how the fermentation starts. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? So the alcohol ends up being produced inside the grains. Right, right, right. And that often will be, it'll either be in a stone vessel or in a clay pot, or it'll be in a pit. They'll just mound it up and then put earth over the top and allow the fermentation to take place that way. So it's a, it is, while there's, it's not an, complete absence of water because without water you can't have fermentation but sure there is moisture it's just not moving water if so to speak mm -hmm. uh so that's kind of the baijiu style of quote unquote dry fermentation gotcha that's kind of what i thought they were doing there must have been the steamed aspect of the grains that there was moisture content that could then as as the the yeast began to break down the sugars it would liquefy and then that then you sort of end up with a slurry of some kind and then I was imagining, I've, I've heard about it being buried in the ground. So I imagine you're just basically making it an uh, oxygen deprived environment, right? An oxygen poor environment so that the yeast would be converting it to alcohol rather than into water. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Really interesting. It is really interesting. But it sounds like it'd just be easier to use a submerged method, right? Like just to just have a wet fermentation. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I don't disagree with you. There's um, a bunch of pros and cons here. Some of the, the pros of, I suppose that solid state fermentation is you have far less effluent after the fact. Mm. So you don't have to, there's no post treatment that needs to happen. It's a little bit, I guess you could say probably um, less of a pollution concern in that sense. But at the same time, it's also difficult to scale dry fermentations. Sure. Because, you know, you need a ton of pots or a ton of pits and, you know, the best pits for fermentation in Baijiu world are dozens of years old. They've started to take on, they've leached in a lot of the fermentation qualities and they, they are part of the fermentation as well. So I, I don't know if that's really scalable. Uh, so you'll see some of the bigger Baijiu distilleries are just, the campuses of these places are like quite literally a mile long. Wow. They are vast places because they need a lot of pots. Yeah, makes all the sense. How long do those fermentations run? It really depends on the style. There's a lot of variability here. Um, some fermentations are really short, like around a week or less than a week, it, depending on the style. And then other fermentations are, I know of a style where there's like eight distillations from the same fermentation throughout a year. Oh, wow. And like they keep taking the grains out of the still and put them back in the ground with more chew. And it's pretty, pretty wild. Huh. Um, there's not, there's not really, I mean, there's 12 recognized styles of Baijiu, four main types. I don't know how many more rules there are really about how you can and cannot make it. There's of course, lots of tradition, but then there's also a lot of mystery and a lot of things that are not very clearly spelled out. So it's similar to the, the shochu world in that there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of variability. It's dissimilar in that I don't think there's really any rules on on what else you can throw in there. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's when I'd uh, seen some labels and some descriptions of the the mash bills, they were they were pretty uh, diverse, pretty interesting, different uses of, it seemed like green peas and things like that, just other vegetables we don't necessarily 
they do throw herbs and spices in there sometimes depending mm -hmm. on the brand or the style if you want to learn more about this solid state fermentation and by joe drinking culture in general i recommend picking up a book by our good friend derek sandhouse he reps a, a really good by joe in the states called ming river mm -hmm. which is a so-called um strong aroma type that is actually the most popular style in china and his his is really really good um and you can learn a lot more about that directly from him and he's very easy to track online sure we'll put we'll put uh his books in the show notes so people can look it up if they're interested yeah cool little little uh, side sidetrack there a little detour yeah a little sidetrack sorry this is this um yeah baijiu is very interesting but let's let's um get back to yeast here and the yeast properties i mean as you said before the same species is used to make both bread and alcohol and interestingly enough well it's called saccharomyces cerevisiae saccharomyces is a greek kind of translation from i believe it was like a, a mashup of of german and maybe a little bit of a french influence but it was basically sugar fungus i think mm -hmm. was the original word and then they they kind of they made it more scientific so sounding by turning it into saccharomyces and they added cervicia which is very similar to the spanish word for beer cerveza so you you know it's Kind of the etymology of this whole thing is pretty funny, but it's basically sugar fun fungus for beer. Mm -hmm. And it is used for making food products. Um, that being said, the, the bread strains have been cultivated to endure higher osmotic pressures while also consequently having a lower alcohol tolerance, which means they really can't create anything more than high single digits in terms of the ABV before they are knocked out of commission by the intensity of their the environment that they've created mm -hmm. of course wine sake and shochu yeast have adapted and they've been subjected to selective pressures from the people using them over generations and the ones that we keep selecting are the ones that tend to create more alcohol and give us the esters and the aromas that we want in the moromi or in the mash and those tend to have very high alcohol tolerances these days some of these fermentations can run over 20 percent abv that's true for sake that's certainly true for um shochu and awamori it's also true for some wine yeast as well uh although wine doesn't use saccharomyces cerevisiae they use uh bayana i believe for most wine mm -hmm. um but yeah it's it it is yeast in the wild wild yeast and it's interesting because there's kind of two baskets of yeast out there that are studied scientifically one is the saccharomyces basket or or group of yeast strains and then there's the non-saccharomyces and the the saccharomyces yeast strains are the ones that have been studied just endlessly sure those are the ones that went from trying to figure out how, why a fermentation was stuck why it was stalled why isn't this brewing correctly went from there to the start of biochemistry to you know <laughs> synchronizing their or mapping out the genome of of yeast in 1996 the first eukaryote ever mapped out completely there's at least 500 known species of yeast in the world and each species has thousands of strains mm -hmm. so the family tree here is unreal and while non-saccharomyces yeasts used to be dismissed because they tend to spoil batches and lead to off flavors, and they tend to infect people with compromised immune systems, now today with the resurgence of natural wine and the appreciation of fermentations that don't really have any human intervention, those quote-unquote wild yeasts are starting to become more appreciated for the, the aroma compounds that they can add to a fermentation. Now, many times those non-saccharomyces yeasts don't fare particularly well at higher alcohol concentrations. So sometimes you're getting the start of the fermentation with these non-saccharomyces, and then the rest of the fermentation is, is continued with a, a known saccharomyces strain. So it's kind of a tandem effort. And I think you'll see a lot more e experimentation with non-saccharomyces yeast strains in the future. Also, a lot more scientific literature about it. Sure. Yeah. With the natural wine movement, that's certainly what happens 
when you're doing a, a wild fermentation and you're not introducing a commercial yeast, whatever joins the party is going to be there from the start. But as Christopher mentioned, the the other yeast strains that may start the fermentation, they may be making some alcohol, and they obviously are creating aroma compounds that'll that'll add to the character of the finished product. It really is a Saccharomyces uh, cerevisiae that takes over and really does the bulk of the the alcohol conversion, even if it's not the yeast that starts the project, basically. It's interesting because as you talked about that, you know, there has been some experimentation uh, with wine yeasts in, in shochu production, but I, I haven't really seen too much beer yeast. And I guess maybe that's because some beer yeasts can't necessarily pump up the alcohol to the level that you would want in a shochu fermentation to maximize yield. I mean, if you think about it, in some ways, Western spirits traditions have an easier time with their fermentations because they usually don't get much above 10% ABV in the fermentation itself. Uh, where in Japan, in particular, there may be a narrower range of yeasts available uh, simply to get that ABV up there to 16, 17, 18, even over 20% alcohol. Uh, at least when we're talking about yeast borrowed from other alcohol traditions, which is some of the experimentation we're seeing now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly, I think, what's going to continue into the near to medium term is finding new yeast to play with and create new, sometimes unexpected aromas and flavors. But, you know, let's let's take a step back here. Most shochu and awamori is made using yeast strains that have been cultivated specifically for the local style by whatever local shochu and awamori distilleries or associations happen to be involved. Uh, one great example is Miyazaki yeast, the official strain of the entire prefecture, which is now used by the majority of the distilleries in Miyazaki prefecture, was first discovered at Shoro Distillery down in Kushima City, Miyazaki. And other distilleries for many years have been showing up to collect some of the yeast and bring it home to make their own shochu. This is pretty amazing claim to fame for Shoro Distillery. It's just something that was naturally in the environment that was living on the walls that they were able to somehow put selective pressure on and to get it to work in the way that they wanted. And it turned out to be the best thing going and, and it's still used across the prefecture. Sure. I mean, and it really shows you the spirit of collaboration that existed in the industry until even just a few decades ago. I mean, I think today you'd have to be really, really close to a neighboring distiller to be able to walk in and walk out with some of his house yeast without a fight. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. for Shoto, this is a source of pride and it will be until another Miyazaki yeast strain comes along that does the job better which seems to have already happened in Kagoshima, where the standard shochu yeast is now known as Kagoshima number two. I'm wondering what happened to Kagoshima number one. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I mean, I've heard of Kagoshima kaori yeast number one, which of course is used in some of the newer expressions from Kokubu distillery, like the the mint green hmm. and, and so on and so forth. But yeah, Kagoshima number two, there's also Kagoshima number four, number five, number six. I don't know what happened at number three. But while we're talking about numbers, I know that the main yeast strain used to make awamori down in Okinawa is awamori yeast number 101. It's interesting because that yeast strain is actually a quote-unquote foamless yeast, which makes it technically an awanashi yeast, which is kind <laughs> of ironic uh, for awamori. Yep. But it's uh, apparently relatively easy to to work with. Now, of course, there is a lot of experimentation down in Okinawa. They're, they're all using rice to make awamori. So they're trying to create some distinction between their brands. Chuko Distillery is really famous for isolating a mango yeast, which they use in several of their brands. There's brands working with different yeasts isolated from flowers and other fruit. And you know, this is constantly in the works, uh, isolating a yeast. I visited a yeast lab a while back and, and talked to one of the main scientists there. And he said, when we collaborate with a distillery to try and isolate a new yeast, and it's not just that it creates great aromas, it's that it also creates enough alcohol. And that's really important. It can take a good two years at least to go from concept to uh, a place where you can be testing the yeast. So 
it's a really long-term process, honestly, and probably also a very expensive process, although I did not ask specifically about that. It definitely is a commitment for distilleries that decide to cultivate a new yeast and, and try something new like that, and credit to Chuko and others who, who do things like that. Uh, it's interesting that you said the, the 101 for the Awamori yeast, the, the, when you see a yeast with a number like that in, in sake making, it's, it is the foamless uh, variety, right? So it might be sake yeast number six, and it becomes 601 or something like that. Uh, and having visited these Awamori distilleries where you've got open fermentations, if you've got a huge head of foam coming off of a very long, hot fermentation, I can imagine it just like spilling up over the sides and making a mess. So it makes sense that they'd be moving to something that creates relatively little foam, uh, just from a, I guess, keeping the distillery clean and not having to deal with it perspective. But right. in, in Kasatori Shochu, which obviously is made with sake lees, and some of the more sought after varieties now are really styles that are made with ginjo sake lees or even daiginjo sake lees. So from really premium uh, rice fermentations, you're going to get a lot of those yeasts used in the, in the Kasatori Shochu. So you're, get, you're using sake yeasts rather than uh, shochu yeasts to make those. And you'll get those really bright green apple or banana aromas that you get in some of the premium sake, uh, which makes for some pretty cool drinks, I have to say. Yeah. And, and as I was saying before, in terms of the experimentation with yeast in the shochu and awamori world, in addition to kokuto sugar or cane yeasts that have been isolated, you're also getting beer and wine yeast used. I mean, we've got komaki they were using a wine yeast. Komasa has used a, a Chardonnay yeast in one of their shochu products. Um, and I think that there's going to be a ton more of this coming up just because there is a need, I think, that people see for types of, of shochu that kind of break the mold and are a little bit more appealing to younger consumers. And I think that's where we're going with a lot of these, these really fruity, estery, expressions ones that pair really well or are really exceptional when you dunk some ice in them and top them up with sparkling water and there's there's a lot of good stuff that's come out there's also a lot of misses i think in my <laughs> my opinion although i'm i'm probably not the best person to comment on these things because i do happen to be kind of old school in my in my preferences for shochu and awamori so and I'm not a huge sparkling drinker. I don't drink a lot of Soodawari, although I'm coming around to it. I do appreciate one every now and again. Uh, that that has synchronized nicely with my increased appetite for whiskey highballs, which was non-existent only a couple of years ago. Sure. Yeah. I, I don't think either of us are really good uh, advocates or commentators for these more fruity styles because we are both pretty old school in our preferences. Although there have been a few that have surprised me. And you mentioned uh, the cool mint green earlier. That's actually something I'll go ahead and order when I see it in an izakaya uh, or shochu bar because I really do enjoy the the aroma profile that that, that, that gives. Uh, but absolutely, there have been some misses. There's, there are some that are just so overly fruity that they almost, you can't taste sweet potato anymore. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of misses the point. But it does, it does show you how, how much influence the yeast has, right? No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Now, maybe just to take a step uh, sideways for a moment and talk about Japanese whiskey. Of course, yeasts are used in all alcohol production, at least until a couple of years ago. Nika, for example, admitted to only using a handful of yeast strains. They, they use basically less than a dozen uh, yeast yeah. strains at Nika. And yet, Suntory and Kirin both claim to have hundreds of yeast strains uh, available to them for anything that they're making for their variety of products. But those are massive companies. So perhaps not all of those yeast are used exclusively for their whiskeys, but they have a lot of, a lot of toys to play with when they're, when they're playing around with their uh, yeast for their whiskey production. Oh, absolutely. I, and I think it's, you do have to be careful when you're just experimenting with a new yeast that maybe it's a house yeast and you have you have exclusive access to it, but there's a pretty significant investment of time and resources to kick the tires on something that isn't tried and true. And, you know, people do recognize, you know, the Kirin flavor, the Suntory flavor, the same extends to beer. You can tell when they're using the same yeast and house yeasts are a beautiful thing, but they're also 
there's a risk, you know, it just, maybe you haven't necessarily used it that much yet. So you got to be very, very careful with it. House yeast are definitely a thing in the shochu and awamori industry. You can call a lot of times it's a, well, house yeast being like the Sanwa Surui model with the makers of Ichigo and they do an amazing job with their lab work and their ability to replicate the flavor profile repeatedly every day, every week, from year to year. They are incredibly consistent. And that's a function of, of course, the climate control that they have implemented implemented in their facilities. It's also the the you know the practices that their Kurabito um, have taken to heart in terms of keeping things clean making sure that there's no wild or non-saccharomyces yeast anywhere within the facility. And they, you know, they glove up, they mask up, they've got hair not, hairnets and gowns on. When we visited, we have to wear the same garb. I'm sure there's pictures of both of us out there looking like we're about to um, walk into a delivery room or something. <laughs> and, you know, and then, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you got smaller places like Watanabe and Miyazaki and Miyazato in, in Okinawa, where they're, really incorporating whatever is on the prevailing winds. They throw those windows open, they leave the doors ajar, and they welcome any any capable yeast strains to the party and any other bacteria and fungi that are on the on the winds. It's really interesting how that lends itself to its own style, its own localized, very of that place aroma and flavor profile that you you couldn't get one town over probably yeah no question i, I remember i think last time i visited watanabe he was mentioning that there was he was kind of proud that there was a pickling pickling factory nearby like he wanted some of those <laughs> those organisms wow. to and that's that's playing with fire because you get too much of that and you're going to turn the the alcohol into acid very quickly and you can end up with vinegar uh, thank, well you know thank, <laughs> thankfully koji produces a ton of acidity because it's going to help protect that yeast but yeah, yeah that's right i mean it, it really is when you think about it that that is pretty risky for a lot of alcohol traditions yeah and his stuff has it's got a lot of complexity a lot of layers and it's it's got to be from from those open fermentation open window uh you know process that he does and sure. you know it's in in my own experience obviously most of my work in distilleries has been at yamato zakura and tekan he he does open fermentations, uh, and just by the nature of the distillery, some of the doors are open during the day. He doesn't really just throw them open during the entire fermentation process, but there's definitely air coming in and out, uh, you know, people running around and all that sort of thing. And yet, his fermentations really end up quite clean. Uh, I think people who have enjoyed Yamato Zakura know that it's it's a it's a I think a really easy drinking style. It's quite quite uh, balanced and and it's it doesn't have all that funk and weirdness that you can get from a really wild open fermentation. And I think part of that might be due to the age of the distillery itself, the production facility. They moved, uh, I guess, about 20 years ago now. So they don't have 100 years of patina on that building to, to mm -hmm. soak up all the yeast and that sort of thing. And if you look around the distillery, you look up in the rafters, you can still read the markings on the wood of the you know, the, the lumber yard that it came from and that sort of thing. So it really hasn't had time, I think, to develop as much of a strong house yeast presence that you might uh, otherwise have. And it'll be interesting to see over time how that changes, right? He's not going to go up and clean those rafters or anything. It's going to eventually develop its own patina over time. And then maybe the drink itself will change. But uh, he doesn't seem too worried about it. Like he, he just does what he does and it comes out and people enjoy it. So. Yeah, it's a process. Absolutely. I think one, I'm now thinking about this entire conversation that we've had, and I think we've kind of touched on, but bounced over the flavor and aroma qualities that yeast imparts. And I think I just want to hammer this real quick before we, we head for the finish line. Yes, yeast is responsible for creating ethanol. That, of course, we really, really care about. But another thing that yeast is really central to is the overall flavor and aroma profile, also the mouthfeel of the drink. 
this is something that I, I think is lost on a lot of folks. They don't seem to realize how central yeast is to everything in the brewing process. And of course, this is a spirits podcast, but we don't have spirits without a good fermentation. So mm-hmm. it is all about the yeast, the health of the yeast. And this was something that when I was brewing for Otter Creek 100 years ago, or, or maybe 200 years ago, I was every day thinking about the health, the viability. I was attempting to become something of a yeast whisperer. I was checking the yeast every day, how genki it was, how, how much it seemed, how quickly it seemed to be working. And as soon as something felt a little off, it smelled a little different. I was letting the cellar master know. I was like, hey, Tom, we got, we, I'm not sure this seems a little different today. Um, and we would run some tests and then figure out what the next moves were. But the checking the yeast was so important just because it was make or break. You lose your yeast, you lose everything. Mm-hmm. To give you a, a sense of how much it can affect the flavor of your drink, I'm thinking back to a time when Tony Barnett was still pitching for the Tokyo Yakult Swallows. He was injured at the time, so he, was, he wasn't on the top team and he had time to hang out. So we went out for drinks and we went to a, a beer place, a really small hole in the wall. And they had a really cool setup, a bunch of taps on the wall. And they had this series of beers. It was, it was the same mash bill, but brewed with different yeast strings. Huh. And so it was the exact same drink except for the yeast was different. Mm-hmm. So that is to say it wasn't the same drink. <laughs> they were completely different. Um, and it was remarkable to see how much the yeast could do with the exact same payload of raw materials. Mm-hmm. And I think you could easily argue that it has a stronger influence on the outcome of the product, on the flavor profile of the final product than Koji does in the Shoju and Awamori world. It, sure. it really, when allowed to, when leveraged in the right way, it can completely change the face of the product. And I think that's uh, a much stronger influence than what Koji typically is permitted to do. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The, the yeast can contribute so much to the flavor and aroma. And as I mentioned, there are some sweet potato shochu that it even goes to the point that it masks any sweet potato character. Like that's a very strong presence for the yeast where it's even dominating the, the main ingredient in a, in a shochu. Um, now, if you'll indulge me, I would like to uh, read a passage from Harold McGee's On Food and Cooking because he really breaks down what's happening and why yeast oh. creates all of these different aroma and flavor compounds or how it does it. Yeah. Just to preface, he, at this point in, in his book, he's introduced how to make wine and how to make beer. He has not yet introduced how to make spirits. So, the way the wording might sound a little bit funny, but with that context, I think it'll be easy to understand. And I quote, yeast introduce a variety of other compounds into the grape juice or grain mash that contribute characteristic flavors. For example, they produce savory succinic acid and transform amino acids in the liquid into higher or longer chain alcohols. They combine alcohols with acids to make fruity smelling esters. They produce sulfur compounds reminiscent of cooked vegetables, coffee, or toast. And when a yeast cell dies, its enzymatic machinery digests the cell and releases its contents into the liquid where they can continue to generate flavor. And that reminds me, at one point, Tekon explained to me that he let his second fermentation, his main fermentations run until he knew that some of the yeast was dying. He, d- he wanted to let it reached that point and that the aroma of the fermentation would change. And that's when he knew it was time to distill. And the reason he went that long, but he didn't let too much yeast die is because he didn't want too much of that aroma, but he wanted some of that character. Gotcha. So really interesting that to read this with that context in my mind from that conversation with Tekon from several years ago, because I was, I was curious. So you want the yeast to die at the end, right? It was just an interesting uh, little tidbit. And this brought back why, because there are, the digest state, basically, what what becomes of those dead yeast cells actually become uh, flavor and aroma compounds in the final drink. Yeah, and the yeast cell wall, even before it dies, is is incredibly permeable. It really, you know, the the glucose goes in, other things come out. It, it's really remarkable how the cell wall is. I don't know. It's like yeast cell walls are are they're like 
Jason Giambi at first base. You know, they they let all sorts of stuff through, and <laughs> it's it's sorry, another ba- baseball reference. Um, but they are really, really remarkable single cell organisms that are they're basically little enzyme bags. You know, the the sugars go in, they they attach in certain ways to the different enzymes, and then boom, out comes a bunch of other stuff. It's a really, really remarkable little microorganism. Yeah, I think um, this was a blind spot for me for a long time with with shochu, not having had a brewer's background like you did, where you had worked with yeast and you understood how it would change character. It was just something I never thought too much about. And I think the first time I became aware of of the contribution beyond obviously making the alcohol was when I visited Komasa Distillery shortly after they began using wine yeasts. And they were doing it in their Kuranoshikon line. And it was basically the same koji, the same starch sources, fermentation methods, the same distillation. And yet the final products were so wildly, wildly different from one another based on what kind of yeast they used. Right. And that was really revelatory for me as somebody who didn't have that background or that context. Yeah, it, it was, uh, it's something that when you, when you really get down to it, it's almost like, well, there's a, there's a reason why there are labs or there are vaults of yeast strains out there around the world protecting these strains. I mean, there's, there's um, laboratories in probably on every continent with thousands of strains in their vaults. If you lose the yeast, I mean, you are done. You you no longer have anything. And and uh, to say that yeast is the most important ingredient in the process is is those are fighting words. I understand for a lot in a lot of different ways, but it is so central. Um, and and that will not be lost on you if you spend enough time in a in a brewery or a distillery. No question. I guess again. Uh, with my limited experience, having worked mostly in Kagoshima and obviously Yamato Dakota, but also other Kagoshima distillers, they've all been small makers. And so they aren't really experimenting with yeast like some of the larger makers have been doing. And so yeah, right. The I haven't individually or personally experienced how the yeast will change the fermentation, but I'm, I'm now thinking I might need to ask for a, a few day internship someplace where I can can learn more about it. It's uh, It's pretty cool. Yeah, the only problem is that they're probably not going to allow you to work with pitching and stuff like that. Well, maybe they will. Maybe there's somebody who will. I bet I bet Techcon would if you asked to learn more about it. Sure. Um, it's just that he probably has his way of preparing it and making sure it gets done. I imagine he's the one who does it, right? He pitches the yeast every time. Oh, he does. Yeah. No, and he's had me do it when when he's got other things going on because I've, I've been there long enough. Oh, okay. Um, and what he does actually and how he sort of gooses it with some house yeasts is he's always using a commercial yeast to do the pitching. Mm-hmm. But then he takes about one to two liters of the primary fermentation that had been made two days prior, and he dumps that in at the very start uh, for so some of those house yeasts that are already active in in a prior fermentation go into the into the new one. Yeah, that's that selective pressure that I was talking about earlier. You're mm-hmm. rewarding good behavior, right? Yep, and that happens quite a lot. Yeah, in the industry. Cool. You uh, sipping on anything? I am actually, I'm sipping on, it's funny, we were talking about the consistency of yeast strains and that sort of thing, but we did touch on wild yeast, uh, native yeast strains, and I'm drinking our good friend Aochu, 35% ABV version, which is actually a double wild fermentation in that the koji and the yeast are both wild. And it's remarkable. It's probably, it deserves an episode of its own. Uh, It is funky. It's a barley koji sweet potato shochu at 35% <laughs> ABV and it's got character for days. Oh, it does. Yeah. You? I cannot find that in Fukuoka. I think it's just, it's from too far away. Yeah. Just, it's a wild one. No doubt. There's only a couple of places in Tokyo that carry it. They just, I mean, there's like 200 people that live on the island and they, they don't make a whole lot of it. Sure. How about you? So I actually went in the other direction. I went with one of these new fruity styles. I'm, I'm sipping on Maru de Banana from uh denen oh and okay. you you were saying that some of these new fruity yeasts are hits and some of them are misses i'd say this one's actually on the hit side oh good uh, i'm quite impressed with the the nose and the balance of, of this compared to some of the other ones that i've had there was one brand that i uh, actually won't mention by name that ended up going down the sink because i just couldn't couldn't <laughs> deal with it so but th- this one this one's nice so modded de yeah. banana from 
from Denen down in Kagoshima. Isoamyl acetate, right? That's the, the banana component. Yep. When done well, it's good. When when done not so well, it's um down the drain. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is the aroma of like, or the flavor of, of basically that synthetic banana flavor from candy when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And so if you got a hint of that with some other character, that's great. When that's all it tastes like, <laughs> I'd rather have a Jolly Rancher. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So gotcha. it's, uh, yeah, but this one, this one's nice. All right. Well, everybody, this has been the yeast episode. Please bow down to the yeast from now on. Every time you open a bottle of shochu, Aomori, or another spirit, then definitely thank the yeasty beastie gods because without them, uh, none of this would work. Um, and thank you very much for listening to this podcast in general, not just this episode. If you want to learn more about Koji, if you missed the episode about the cuts, then definitely go back and listen to those to supplement your overall understanding of how the fermentation and the production process work. If you haven't already, then please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you consume this content. It really does help others to find the show. And don't be afraid to reach out to us. We are very easy to track down online. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter, at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram, and Stephen's easy to find as well. That's right. I'm at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. And uh, please check out our website, japandistilled.com. I write up the show notes after every episode and try to include pictures and other help, helpful links uh, so that you, if you're curious about anything, you can usually find more information there. And please tune into our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday, every Tuesday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. Yes, and actually we have our first shout outs for some of our new patrons. We would like to thank Colby, Timothy Sullivan, Carrie Conan and Chris Caldwell for supporting the show through our Patreon page. If you'd like to join them again, please visit patreon.com slash Japan Distilled. Thank you to all of you who have donated so far. We really, really appreciate the support. And especially uh, gratifying to see Timothy Sullivan on there, who has his own podcast, the Sake Revolution podcast, podcasts with uh, John Puma. Timothy, obviously, is a, is a longtime friend from New York City who has... Uh, been very supportive of, of what we've been doing. So appreciate even more support from all of you. And from both of us here in Japan to everyone around the world, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time.